Oh God, we cry out to you for your help and for your grace as we gather and seek your face together. In these difficult times, we ask that you would be gracious and merciful to pour out your spirit upon us more and more that we might know you and know the depth of your love and rest in the assurance that you hold this world in your hands and our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's been quite a week, and I have a sense that I could say that every week right now, and that would be true. Um, I was honestly quite discouraged after watching the presidential debate on Tuesday night. From what I saw, it epitomized all that is broken in the political discourse of our nation at this moment. We seem to be unable to listen to practice civility, to show humility, and to engage and disagree with those, or, uh, with those who disagree on different issues while remembering that we are citizens together of this nation. These ruts do seem to only be getting deeper, and it's difficult to see any of this changing anytime soon. I will say that probably the most encouraging thing that's happened since then for me is joining with many of you on Friday night at our all-church prayer gathering and spending some intentional time praying together for our nation and for our leaders, for both of the presidential candidates, for our president as he has contracted the virus and, and other things. It's so good to be with God's people and to lift up our bewilderment, uh, our sense of powerlessness, our frustrations before the Lord, and even to intercede and to pray together. And I found that to be a tremendous encouragement on Friday night. It's also really good to be in worship together uh, today and to open up God's word together and back to the gospel of John again and to see a picture of something good and beautiful in Jesus as a leader and as our king. We are, of course, all thinking about, we can't help but think about right now, leadership and leaders given the presidential election. And in our text today in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, we see a picture of Jesus as a leader who exercises authority rooted in his identity that creates a new or changes reality. Authority, identity, and reality. That will be our focus with our time together this morning on this text. A little bit more intro. In the prologue of John's gospel, he describes Jesus twice, once in verse 17 and once in verse 14, as being full of grace and truth. And there is something about these opening two stories of Jesus's public ministry in chapter two that are a commentary on that expression, full of grace and truth. In the Cana wedding miracle, the water into wine miracle, Jesus's grace is on beautiful display. He rescues the bridegroom and the, and the uh, master of the banquet from sure public humiliation. And he creates a, a, an abundance, a superabundance of wine to enable the party to continue, symbolizing that he has come to bring us joy. What a gracious king we serve. The story that we are looking at today, what we call the cleansing of the temple, is a story that illustrates the truth side of that phrase. Here, Jesus speaks truth to power right at the heart of power in his culture in his day the temple was the locus of national identity and life it was the place of pride and of power of judicial law of taxation and of religious life 
Today, we often separate religion from the rest of culture. They couldn't do that in the ancient world. They were uh, woven together all throughout the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish culture was no exception. The temple was the central place of their national identity. We might think best of the temple if we think of combining the Supreme Court, the National Cathedral, the Capitol Building, the IRS headquarters, and Central Park in New York City all into one place. This would be a fair description of how significant the temple was in their society. It was the center of Jewish life. And Jesus walks into this place, John tells us in verse 13, when Passover was almost here, when it was almost time for Passover. That is, this was not just any ordinary day or week. This was the moment of the great festival, the greatest of the festivals of the Jews. When Jews would gather from all around the diaspora, they would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would worship the Lord and they would celebrate his amazing deliverance in the Passover event from long ago when they were rescued out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. This was a time when the city was abuzz, when it was full of people, the festival was going strong and the hopes were stirred. The rabbis of that day had a saying, he saved us on a Passover and he will save us again on a Passover. The expectation for God's coming deliverance would be strong in this season. The Romans knew this so they would beef up the security much like the Boston police do when there's going to be a, a protest organized on the common. There are police officers all around and that would have been true in Jerusalem of that day. Jesus walks in to this context and he does something quite astonishing. Verses 14 through 17 show us his actions. And they're focused on Jesus through and through. We think about the verbs. Jesus went up. Jesus found. Jesus made. Jesus drove out. Jesus scattered. Jesus overturned. Jesus said. Jesus enters the temple courts. What we would call the court of the Gentiles. That is the outer court of the temple precincts. And it's helpful to, to know that Herod's temple in this day took up 25% of the city of Jerusalem and it was the size of 35 football fields, this complex. He enters into the outer courts, the temple, the court of the Gentiles, and he discovers people selling cattle, sheep and doves and money changers sitting at their tables, changing out money. And he makes a whip. Interestingly, this is the only record we have of Jesus making anything in the New Testament. Yes, we know he was a carpenter, but we don't have records of what he made. But we have a record of him making a whip. And he drives out those selling the cattle and the sheep. And he overturns the tables of the money changers. And he pours out their coins. You can imagine this scene. It'd be pretty intense. A lot of tension there as Jesus is doing this in the temple. And I'm sure it captured the attention of many. It would also have brought to mind... For many in that day, the Old Testament passages that describe the Lord returning to his temple. Places like Malachi 3, Zechariah 14. Bringing refinement or purification. Or even texts like Jeremiah 7. Implying that the temple needed to be torn down because of the waywardness and corruption of God's people. They couldn't trust in the temple. They would say the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. But God tells them don't trust in that. The time had come for them to receive judgment. This is Jesus being bold right now, full of truth in the halls of power. So what do we learn about him here as our king, as a leader? That is our question. 
Before addressing that question more directly, I do want to acknowledge that in the three synoptic gospels, this story of Jesus cleansing the temple takes place at the end of their accounts of Jesus's life and ministry. Whereas here in John, it takes place at the beginning. Scholars are, of course, divided on how to resolve this difficulty. Some, like Augustine, say that there were two events of temple cleansing and that John is narrating one and the synoptics another, and that is a possibility. Others say that there was only one and that John moved it to the beginning of his narrative to frame his narrative by this conflict between Jesus and the authorities of the Jewish people um, represented in the temple and to show that Jesus's primary concern in his ministry is for the honor of God. This latter view is the view of Gary Burge, longtime professor of New Testament at Wheaton, who writes, there is no doubt that, for all four ev- that all four evangelists felt free to place sayings and stories of Jesus's life in settings that suited their literary purposes. Using uncompromised historical material, John is creating a theological portrait of Jesus's display of signs in the context of Judaism. This is the way that I lean, but in the words of Ricky Watts, a New Testament scholar at Regent College in Vancouver, who leans in the other direction that there were two temple cleansings, he says, I wouldn't go to the stake either way. And I think that we should not either. There's a great quote by Luther where he basically says, look, these are difficulties that we don't really understand that we can't figure out the answers to. So let's just get on with serving Jesus and knowing him. So what do we do? What do we learn about Jesus as our leader? Authority, identity, and reality. So first, authority. We see Jesus in this temple exercising authority. In fact, when he's questioned in verse 18, they ask him, by what authority? What sign are you going to show us to to demonstrate that you have the authority to do these things that you have done? So these these actions are... are, uh, an expression of Jesus saying, I belong here. I am making statements here. I am taking over here. And what's driving him as his disciples remember in verse 17 is Psalm 69, 9. A psalm about the righteous sufferer that fits with Jesus very well. Zeal for your house will consume me. What is driving Jesus and his actions, not just in this incident, but throughout his ministry, is the honor of his father. It is the honor of God that drives Jesus to do what he does here. And that's what moves him in his ministry. In fact, that psalm quote from Psalm 69.9 says that zeal for your house will consume me. And if we trace Jesus's ministry to the end, in fact, his deep Longing and zeal to honor God does lead to his being consumed, eaten up at the cross. So how does he exercise authority? First, he does so by taking authority over the worship of the people of God. The buying and selling of sacrificial animals was a necessary part of Jewish worship. It was a service to pilgrims who had traveled long distances to keep them from having to herd animals for sacrifice that long distance. They could come and they could buy these sacrificial animals in Jerusalem to offer them for their sacrifice at Passover. Similarly, to pay the temple tax to ensure by the temple authorities that they were getting money of value and currency that would work there, they wouldn't take foreign coins. They wanted to assure the quality and purity of the money that they received in the temple treasury to support the work of God's people. And that too, of money, that, ne- that uh, money changing was a necessary service for the people of, of God. 
So then that begs the question, if these were necessary services, what's the problem? And the clearest answer to that question is location. Doing this kind of business in the temple precincts themselves is the problem. So Jesus can say in verse 16, get these out of here, he says to those selling doves. How dare you turn my father's house into a market or rather into a house of trade. What you're doing is spiritually thick-headed. And Jesus, again, moved by zeal to honor his father, says enough with this. Some evidence in the day suggests that this was a recent innovation, something that Caiaphas, the high priest, had won over the Sanhedrin to a permit to bring these services inside to the temple precincts. And if so, Jesus is taking on the authority of the high priest as he does this symbolic action. But he does it because he wants the worship of God to remain pure and free from all concerns about money and trade. There is a critique here of any mixture of motives in worship, especially of profit or commerce. No doubt the tradesmen and the money changers would take a profit through the services that they were providing. And there is possibly, certainly in the synoptic account of this event, some hint of corruption given Jesus's quotation from Jeremiah 7 about the den of robbers. That is certainly a possible reality. But the main thing here in John is that this is happening within the realm of the temple, which is dedicated to worship. Worship is to be, as Jesus will later say in chapter 4, in spirit and in truth, not tainted by such everyday concerns as making money. God deserves respect. And this is the truth that Jesus came to proclaim and defend. Honor God. Don't combine these matters with your worship. Many, many years ago, Mandy and I and my mom, we were in Colorado Springs for a break, decided to attend the crusade of a worldwide well-known evangelist about whom I had some suspicion already going in. We went to the World Arena in Colorado Springs, uh, which is interesting that we have such an arena titled that in Colorado Springs. Um, But we went to hear this man do his crusade. And honestly, it was one of the most disturbing times that I can remember. As he proclaimed God and as he talked to a nearly full auditorium and encouraged people to be faithful. And we all knew everybody was there for the healings, but he didn't get to those. He just moved forward and moved forward and then tried to coax as much as he could out of the people. And then at one moment, it was almost like, it felt to me like a team of demons just coming out of every door in the auditorium with these big buckets and passing them around with credit card slips and everything else to take up this offering before the event of healing for which people had come. It was a gross mixture, a diabolical mixture of the worship of God with mammon, with money, with the things of this world. And unfortunately, that story can be told about so much of the church in its history. Jesus takes authority over the worship of the people of God. But Jesus also takes authority over the mission of the people of God. Because where were these sellers and money changers Uh, set up. They were in the court of the Gentiles and this is significant. God's presence rested upon Israel not just for Israel's own sake but that through Israel God might bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's Genesis 12 and his promise to Abraham. 
So from the beginning of the temple's existence in the people of God, when Solomon, the son of David, builds the temple, those outside of Israel were always in view. And in Solomon's dedication prayer in 1 Kings 8, he prays that foreigners would come here and that you, O Lord, would hear their prayers. Isaiah 56, again quoted in the synoptic account, we're told that when God would make things new, that his house would become a house of prayer for all nations. Israel was to shine the light of the world to the world. And God's dwelling place was to be the epicenter of that light, which was open to foreigners, those whom in the first century would have been called God-fearers, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Not a Jew, but one who had come to know the Jewish God and had begun to worship him. They had a place, the court of the Gentiles, in the temple precincts in which they could come and study the law and learn and worship. And in the middle of that place, the Jewish leaders decided to set up a market. So distorting their mission to be a light to the nations. And Jesus walks in and he exercises authority over the mission of God's people and says, this is inappropriate. This is an act of injustice to those whom God has invited to come to know him and to worship him. That is, of course, the hallmark of Jesus' own ministry, to be the one who would be, as Isaiah 49 said, a light to the Gentiles and to the nations. And Jesus comes and says, your nationalistic fervor, many of you probably don't even want to have Gentiles in the temple at all, but you've at least taken this step to set up this market in the middle of the places that they're called to worship, and you're doing a disservice to our mission. And then Jesus takes authority in a much broader way over the dispensing of the grace of God. Because beyond worship and beyond mission that the temple signifies, the temple signifies the the, the mechanism, the symbol, the, the, the uh, outpouring of the grace of God upon the people of God because it's in the temple where sacrifices would take place and those sacrifices were the means by which the people of God would receive atonement and forgiveness for their sins. This was a pouring out of grace and all that took place in the temple was to be a giving of the grace of God to his people. And in the temporary, and it is this action of Jesus doesn't overturn all of the machinery in the temple. It's a temporary action of disruption. But in that temporary disruption and cessation of the sacrifices in the temple, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, this practice, this is coming to an end. It's not going to persist. There, of course, had been hints of this in the prophets where God made it clear that sacrifice is not what he was primarily interested in. So Isaiah 1 verse 11, Woe to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings. Jesus is pointing out that that day is coming because there is a different sacrifice, a different avenue for the grace of God to be received. And this new avenue will render the old one obsolete and it will bring about the kind of change in living that God has always sought from his people when Jesus says destroy this temple in verse 19 we'll look at that more in a moment there's a sense in which that has a double meaning about both both about his body but also it's a pronouncement of judgment upon this institution and the corruption of the people of God in his day that he came to rescue and to save Jesus takes authority over worship over mission over the dispensing of God's grace in his zeal for the honor of God But who is he and how does he have this authority? And this is our second point then about identity because Jesus' authority is rooted in his identity. And there's a small hint in verse 16 when he speaks to those selling doves. He says, 
Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a a market or a house of trade? It's that little possessive pronoun, my. He didn't say our father's house. He said my father's house. And in this sense, Jesus is claiming a unique identity and relation with the father that marks his entire ministry and that John, the gospel writer, wants us to see from the beginning to the end that Jesus is the only begotten son of God. And what he's doing is he stands into this central symbol of the people of God at the central moment in their annual cycle of festivals and and speaks these things and does these actions. Jesus is saying, I have the right, I have the authority to make these kinds of actions and claims in this house. Because I belong to the Father. I am the unique Son of God. And I can do these things. He exercises authority rooted in his identity. But thirdly, creating a new reality. Needless to say, of course, Jesus' actions catch people's attention. And so they ask in verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? In other words, who are you to walk in here and turn these things upside down and pour the money out and all of the things that you've just done? And that identity then gets pushed further with his comment in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John tells us in verse 21 that Jesus was speaking of his body. Of course, they couldn't think about that. They thought, what do you mean? This temple that Herod has taken 46 years to build to its current state of grandeur, you're going to build it up in three days after it's destroyed? They thought there's no way. Now, of course, if they had known what Jesus really meant, his deeper meaning, they would have been even more incredulous and astonished. Jesus is saying... I am the new temple. He is the dwelling place of God on earth. He is the new Bethel from the end of chapter 1, Genesis 28. Or from the prologue, he is God's presence tabernacling among us. God himself tabernacling among us. And this is clear in John, in the gospel, throughout the gospel. Jesus is now the focal point of God's worship, God's mission, and God's grace. And that's what he's saying. My authority will bring about a new reality. This new temple was in some sense already present in him as he began to gather people around himself in his ministry and as he performed this symbolic action of judgment upon the temple. But it would come fully through the one sign that he says he would give above all, his own death and resurrection. In other words, this new temple, this new reality would come about as Jesus exercises his rightful authority as the unique son of God by laying down his life for the world. Even as Jesus stands in this moment and speaks truth to power, he does so as the one who knows that his primary expression of divine authority would be by laying his life down on the cross as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And doing so for the very money changers and the sellers of the livestock that he was throwing out of the temple in that moment. In other words, what envelops Jesus' stern exercise of authority in terms of speaking truth into his context is the final and climactic action that will, in which he will exercise his authority through sacrificial love and laying his life down for the world. He doesn't just lay his life down for the money changers and the sellers of livestock, but he lays his life down for the 
the priests and the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the corrupt nation of that day. The new reality that Jesus brings in is authenticated and stamped and forever marked by the love that he extends even to his enemies. His resurrection body is the new locus of worship, mission, and grace. And he becomes the place where we can know, enjoy, and rest in God's presence. In the word-proclaiming, meal-consuming body of the church, where Jesus will always be present with us. That expands beyond Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This is the assertion of John's gospel, that in Jesus, God's presence can be enjoyed by everyone in his resurrection body. People didn't get it when he said this. Even his disciples didn't get it. But we're told at the end of the story in verse 22 that after he had been raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They came into deeper life. This belief seems to be growing. They believed more deeply in Jesus at the end of the Cana miracle. And now they believe in the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken at the end of this account in the temple. And that belief in John's gospel is what ushers us into the new creation reality that Jesus has come to bring about in his death and resurrection. It is no surprise that the next story in the gospel of John is about new birth. It's about new life. It's about a new reality. Because the king that we serve exercises authority through his identity and creates a new reality. And we are to believe him, to trust in him, and to enter into that new reality ourselves. Two thoughts as we come to a close. One is that Jesus wants to exercise this authority in our lives and to create a new reality for us. He wants to redirect our worship, to redirect our mission, to redirect our experience of the grace of God by bringing us into himself. That is exactly what he came to do and that is what he wants to do in every one of our lives. Jesus wants to be that kind of king, that kind of leader whose authority is exercised in your life primarily through the act of his death and resurrection, but now in bringing you in to the new reality which he has created and bringing you in to the new temple. And we are referred to as the temple of God throughout the New Testament then as the people of God. We are grafted in to his temple, to his body. And we become now the locus and the dwelling place of God upon earth. He not only wants to do that in us, but he also wants to do that through us in the world. As we are grafted into Jesus, we then begin to share in his identity, which means that we share in his authority, which means as we exercise that authority in the world, an authority primarily exercised, not in the critique and the the confrontation, though that is there and that is a part of our vocation, but an authority that is primarily exercised through actions of self-giving, sacrificial love. As we take up our cross, as our king and leader took up his cross, we can become the church in the world in a different way and lead to a new reality in the lives of our neighbors and even our enemies as we take up this kind of authority in our lives. An authority expressed through acts of love, an authority that brings about in the world different kinds of realities new kinds of creation for people all around us this is what Jesus wants to do in us authority identity and reality and he wants to do this through us as 
his people who share in that authority and identity. These are difficult times. And we are called as Christians to stand into these times and to speak words of truth, to speak on behalf of the honor of God, to be the mouthpiece of sanity and civility and humility in a context in our nation where those things don't seem to be very popular at the moment. But as we do so, we are always to be the people who are shaped by this sign, the sign that Jesus said would authenticate his claims to be the new temple, the sign of his resurrection, the sign of his crucifixion, those two things going hand in hand. We are to do that, to stand into our world as those who would lay our lives down in love for the world around us that we at times feel has lost its mind. This is to mark us as the people of God. This is the way that the ministry that Jesus exercises here over worship, over mission, over the grace of God is to be expanded out into the ends of the earth through us now, his body. May we do so by his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the one who came as the leader and king that we all desperately need and long for. You are worthy of our worship. You have brought us tremendous grace. You have given us a new identity. Oh, Lord Jesus, may we walk with you this week as your brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of your father. And may we see new realities come about by our love, by our witness to your truth, by our zeal for your honor, O God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.